Hello, and welcome to the Keepers of the Flame podcast. This is a show to shine a light into the darkness, to empower women, their support networks, and our communities to weather breast cancer, because together we weather the storm. But on this ocean, every wave brings you closer to home. Hello and welcome back to Keepers of the Flame podcast. I'm Joyce Williams, your host, and this is episode number 51, Working with Grief and Traumatic Loss, Theory, Practice, Personal Reflection, and Self-Care, a textbook with one of the authors, Dr. Elizabeth Councilman Carpenter. Grief accompanies loss, but to be perfectly clear, loss isn't always referring to the loss of a loved one. It can be any traumatic loss, and y'all... Breast cancer, along with the treatments required of having had such a diagnosis, they most definitely qualify as being traumatic. We have the loss of our health, the loss of a sense of self. We have lost body parts and loss of feeling femininity with the removal of organs or with the removal of hormones that in some way have defined our identity for so long. Some of us lose our hair or our fingernails completely come off of the beds. There's the loss of sensation of our own touch, the loss of a sense of safety or direction. And as I have said a million times, one that bugs me immensely is the loss of control. There's this feelings of hopelessness that begin to rise, and that is traumatic. Knowing that the person you are or the person that you become post-cancer will never again be the same person that you were prior. Acknowledging this, acknowledging and embracing and grieving for the loss of your former self, it's not easy. You live through a trauma, you grieve, but with support, together we will learn to heal. And I myself am still a work in progress. But to help shine a light on this topic, And to educate us even further, we are blessed to have with us today Dr. Elizabeth Councilman Carpenter. She and her co-author, Alex Redke, wrote a textbook for clinicians. And though I am not a clinician, I read it myself and I found it enlightening as well, and I highly recommend it. The title of the book is Working with Grief and Traumatic Loss, Theory, Practice, Personal Reflection, and Self-Care. And Beth is here to talk to us today about this book and how grief and this traumatic loss can affect us as breast cancer survivors as well. When Beth first published her book, I, as one of her friends, was super excited for her and ordered a copy and asked her to autograph it for me. And what she wrote on the inside cover, it still makes me tear up every time I read it. She wrote, Dearest Joyce, one of my oldest friends and fellow warriors in the field of trauma, Your work is so important and you inspire me every day. I'm so lucky to have you in my life. Love and aloha always, Beth. You see, Beth and I, we go way back. We first met in the fall of 1986 when we both moved to Hawaii. We lived on the same street. I was starting kindergarten and Beth was in fourth grade. And she, my brother, Mike, and I soon became the three musketeers. We did everything together. We played Top Gun on our bikes. We made countless forts in garages, outdoors, in trees. 
We came up with the craziest games. We were very crafty and clever. Some of these games got us into trouble, like saying throwing pillows and breaking antique lamps, and others stretched our imaginations and took us on crazy adventures. We jumped into fairy tales. We traveled to other planets. We were adventurous. We were creative. We engineered. We spent countless hours in the pool swimming and imagining even more games and adventures. These are among my most treasured childhood memories. When we grew up, we still kept in touch, and of course later connected in the modern social media age as well. And when cancer came knocking on my door and I was diagnosed with breast cancer, Beth became a huge supporter of mine. It meant the world to me. This is, of course, my personal connection with such a remarkable woman. However, her professionalism extends to helping countless others as well, and her willingness to speak with us today as a licensed clinical social worker, researcher, and educator in the fields of trauma, grief, and loss. It has potential to help countless more, and I am just super excited to have her here with us today to share some of her expertise. Beth got her BA in Sociology from the University of Richmond in 1999, her MSW from New York University in 2004, her PhD in Social Work from Adelphi University in 2014. She is a registered play therapy supervisor, a licensed clinician in both Connecticut and New York. She is currently working in a private practice in Connecticut, is the assistant professor of social work at Southern Connecticut State University's College of Health and Human Services in New Haven, Connecticut. She's a researcher, author, and my friend, and I am beyond blessed to welcome her to our show today. Beth, welcome. We are so happy to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. We want to talk about the book that you and your co-author, Alex Redke, wrote, Working with Grief and Traumatic Loss, Theory, Practice, Personal Reflection, and Self-Care. But before we dive into talking about your book, let's first better understand what is traumatic loss and what is grief. Help us with that. Sure. So traumatic loss is, I want to start with the word sort of trauma first, which is something that causes physical, emotional, spiritual, and or psychological harm. So that's sort of the definition of a traumatic experience. A traumatic loss, loss is basically a change in what was before. So when you have traumatic loss, that losing whatever that before was causes some sort of physical, emotional, psychological, and or spiritual harm. And it may or may not be life-threatening, but it's left sort of an indelible impression. Grief is typically conceptualized as sadness related to the loss of a person, but that's not actually the definition. Grief is also the loss of something that you had before. So you can grieve a sense of normalcy. Um, You can grieve the loss of your home if you lose it in a natural disaster. You can grieve your health and you can grieve the loss of a person. Grieving is a change from before. There is a loss of something and or someone. Right. I think that's important to bring out too, because we tend to deny ourselves our experiences. In in reality, we have been through something hard. And as you're mentioning, loss doesn't have to be loss of life. It could be like um, the loss of health. Sometimes we've lost those body parts or the sense of safety or Um, good God, this is my word, loss of control. Like, so all of those things, those are all really big 
losses and grief accompanies that. Absolutely. Okay, so your book, it's a textbook written for clinicians on how to work with clients experiencing this grief and traumatic loss. And it's broken down into six chapters. Chapter one, talking about grief theories. Chapter two is the evidence-based and interventions for grief and loss. And chapter three is the nature of loss, where you incorporate some personal stories to kind of give it some perspective. Chapter four, I thought was incredibly enlightening. Well, it's religion and culture, and you're taking um, a look at it through the different lenses of people's belief systems. Chapter five is the discussion and exercises for classroom, and chapter six was self-care. And I want to kind of take them and talk about them piece at a time, but let's start with first with uh, theories. On page five, you explain five stages of grief according to Kubler-Ross. For those of our listeners who have no idea what anything about this grief other than their unpleasant feelings, help us understand these five stages according to them. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is sort of considered the mother of grief theories, although her theory has been called into question and been challenged a lot in more recent times. She interviewed those who were dying about how they felt about dying and came up with this five-stage model. And so the first stage is denial, followed then, and I'll go through and talk about the stages a little bit, but they go from denial to anger to bargaining to depression and then finally acceptance. And the first time Kubler-Ross wrote about this, she posited it as linear stages. You go through from one to five, and we now know that that's not true and that this model doesn't fit everybody. Kubler-Ross's work was developed from those who were dying to those who had lost someone. So it began being applied to, you know, the bereaved. Mm -hmm. So some of it translates well and some of it doesn't. But denial is, this can't be happening. I, I haven't lost someone or I myself am not dying. This isn't true. It's unreal. I can't believe it. I'm in a dream. And then anger is rage. You know, why me? Why did I lose this person? Why am I losing myself or my health. It's not fair. I've lived a good life. Bargaining is the if onlys. I will trade anything. I will do anything. If I were a person of greater faith, if I had just gone to the doctor sooner. And then depression is, my God, this is real. It's a profound sadness. And then acceptance is, okay, this is happening. So why I think Dr. Kubler-Ross's work was so important to start from in the book is because there's so much history attached to it. It was good from a personal standpoint, too, for me to hear that there are different stages of grief because it's not like I hadn't experienced these different emotions in my life, sadness, fear. I wasn't a stranger to them. But then when something like this happened and they're coming in these intense waves, having some perspective of what, why this is happening. Okay. I'm not just really angry. I'm grieving for something, you know, like it kind of helped me put it more into perspective. Um, is avoidance considered part of denial? Oh, absolutely. If I just don't answer the phone, then the news can't be there. We are very clever as humans at convincing ourselves, right? So if you avoid something, then it must not be true. Right. So it's just another form of denial. And so I guess keeping really busy might might fall into that too. Like if I continue on with my life and stay really, really busy, then I don't ever have to stop and think about it because it's not there. Right. You can push things away if you stay compulsively busy. To a certain extent, but then either maybe when you're sleeping, you dream about it or you something stops you in your track. 
works typically. That only works for so long. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I have been there. I have tried and it has come up again and again and again. And also denial. I wanted to, to put this out there too, because I thought I was crazy at first, but when I first got that phone call and heard this, this wasn't the cancer call. This was the, you have three masses. We need, we need to do a biopsy to know what the MRI is really showing you call. When I hung up that phone, I laughed and I looked back and at first I was like, why the heck did I laugh? Who laughs at news like that? And so like upon reflection, I'm like, well, I bet that was rolled up into some denial. Like surely if I laugh about it, it's just a bad joke. It's not real. It can't be me. Right. And I know I'm not the only person that has said that laughter has come out at some point in time during this. And I just didn't want any of my listeners to think that they're crazy if they have that sort of response. That's actually a very common reaction. Humor is a defense mechanism. It's one of our original defense mechanisms. But it's very normal to have a reaction like laughter or be like, I didn't get that phone call. Or something else common that happens is you start to become comfortable whatever that news or loss is and people around you are like, it's no big deal. You're going to be fine. Right. They deny it because it forces them to question their own mortality. No, no, those test results can't be true. You know, they they switch something or you maybe you misheard them. There can right. also be kind of a collective denial or avoidance also. That's a good point. Very true. Because you're not the only one that's having to process it. It's affecting family and your friends as well. You had mentioned bargaining. So I had to have chemo. And when I had chemo, I knew I was going to lose all my hair. And instead of it falling out on its own, I wanted to say when. I wanted to say how the strands were going to go. So I went and had it shaved. And I cried the whole time. It was another loss, right? And I remember standing in my kid's room that night. I had just tucked him in. As I'm standing there looking over them, like I just start crying and I'm thinking, and I'm saying to myself, and this doesn't make any sense, but this is, you know, back to the bargaining. But as painful as it was for me to shave my head, I'm just thinking, I would shave my head every single day for the rest of my life if I can just stay here with you, be here with you, watch you grow up. And even though that doesn't make any sense at all, that's an example of trying to bargain. Like, yes. if I just do this, then... And, and you said that originally she thought that they were sequential, but that's really not the case. You can revisit them? Absolutely. And you may cycle, you know, between denial and anger, denial and anger, denial and anger you know, acceptance. And then there's this, there's a lot of questions of, do we ever really accept the loss? And there's, you know, there's information that supports it. There's information that doesn't. I think that that's a very subjective definition, the acceptance Mm -hmm. piece, but there's often a lot of cycling, you know, around the first four stages. Yeah. Acceptance is something that I keep trying to get to, (laughs) but I think that it kind of is more about, you can't undo it, right? You can't undo the trauma that has been done. So it's not about going back and erasing that or trying to be the person that you were before, but it's rather accepting that here, this is my here, this is my now. And and not that it defines you, but it's part of you. Right, I would say that it, it comes to more of an integration of the experience because you can't change it, it's happened. I do believe grief is transformative and there are a lot of theorists and, and folks who write in the book about how grief has transformed them. And, so, and and it can have both positive and negative transformation. But I think it becomes how do you integrate the experience as opposed to accepting it? Right. 
Let's talk about another one of the theorists that you mentioned in your book. On page 16, you're talking about Strobe and Shoot. I think I may have said that right. Um, And you have a quote there. It says, taking a break from the emotional and physical stress of grief that they argue can have great physical and behavioral health implications over time. So how exactly can clients or breast cancer patients, how do they actually do that? How do they take a break? Because I know like for me, I'm very type A, give me a plan. I'm going to mark it off my list, right? And it really kind of bugged the poop out of me that with this whole emotional healing thing, you couldn't give me an outline. Let me do this. It'd be done. And so when I read this about, well, sometimes you need to give yourself a, a break from that emotional and physical stress. I'm like, hmm, what does that mean? How does that look? I think it comes down to you don't have to be perfect all the time. You don't have to be the perfect patient all the time. And sometimes you do just have to pretend it's normal. Like sometimes you have to take six hours off. It doesn't mean, you know, like obviously don't take the medications that are helping you or don't avoid a treatment that's helping you or a doctor's appointment. But, you know, sometimes you can turn off your phone and your social media and whether it's being with your family or your friends or your loved ones, like it's okay to laugh and have a girl's night. It's okay to go on a hike and for two hours not think about your diagnosis You know, and there's, I think, particularly for folks who are battling cancer, this idea that you have to, you know, be positive all the time and be strong for everybody else. And, and it's okay to be messy. So that's, I think, really what Stroby and Shoot are talking about. Like, sometimes Mm -hmm. A, yes, it's okay to pretend things are normal. We all just need a break from that. And the other piece then too is, you don't have to be perfect. It's okay if you're a bit of a mess. Right. As I like to tell people that call me is that we're human. We're going to have good moments and bad moments. And and I think that that, um, that resonated with some of the people that I, I spoke to because they recognized that it was okay, that they were human too. And if they were experiencing something like that, it didn't uh, negate their weakness. Yes, exactly. Another theorist is was Rando, and I think it was on page 17, they were talking about grief having three stages, avoidance, confrontation, and accommodation. Help us better understand that. So avoidance, that goes back to the, the denial piece, which is this, is this is not my reality. This could not possibly be my reality. And avoiding talking about it, avoiding thinking about it, staying really, really busy, maybe emotionally shutting down confrontation is, oh shit, this is my new normal. Right. Okay. I'm going to confront this head on. I'm going to take this on for type A folks. It's, I'm going to have a plan. This is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to have to do it. You might even have spreadsheets and schedules and I'm going to tackle this. Color coordinated, baby. That's (laughs) right. Color coordinated makes it all better all the time. That's right. And then a combination is I'm learning how to live with this new normal and perhaps color coding doesn't always make me feel better. Accommodation is the messier part of sitting with one's new normal. What does it look like to live without this person? What does it look like to live without this body part? And then also it can include guilt because let's say you're early in remission and you're surviving and someone in your support group didn't. So it's this guilt of I get to have a new normal. I get to move forward and other folks don't. And that guilt can be very powerful. And it's a it's a unique aspect of the accommodation. The other piece about accommodation for folks who are in early remission, too, is you can have grief over losing your treatment protocol. You know, the life of someone who is actively fighting cancer 
you know, it can become all consuming because you're fighting for survival. And then when you stop going to your treatment appointments and you have less frequent doctor's check-ins, that can feel like a loss. So then how do you accommodate your new normal as someone who's on the cusp of being seen as healthy again? Yes, I have heard that a lot too. Fear kind of raises its head a little bit there too with, well, am I really done? Like, are you sure? Don't you need to see me? Like, um, becomes a little bit of an issue as well. When you were talking about guilt and survivor's guilt, I've spoken to several women who have mentioned that it, it kind of turns from this, why me, to then you get to the survivor mark, and then it's like, well, why not me? which just kind of compounds, I think, all of those intense emotions is when we when we layer on top that guilt. Um, when you're talking about these three things, and I, I'm assuming that these three stages can work with not just the event, but the emotions that you're using to process the event as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So for me, because I've always been like, Miss Happy and glasses half full <laughs> and let's conquer the world. Don't mess with me, bad things. And uh, trying to silver lining everything. So for me, when I was reading this in your book, I was like avoidance. Well, to me, that was me trying to silver lining everything. If I have these negative emotions, this fear, this overwhelming sadness here, it's not that bad because let me put a pretty dress on it and make him look not scary and avoiding acknowledging its realness, right? The rawness (laughs) of it all. And then confrontation. I was told, and I'm a huge advocate of therapy, I was told that it doesn't go away. And I think you kind of alluded to this in the beginning that at some point, you know, it might come up in a dream or it might come up somewhere else. You can only avoid it for so long and so that you have to face them. So I wrongfully thought that this meant that you have to face it and that it was going to be a confrontation, right? That it's me versus these negative emotions. So let me battle them out. And of course, learning through my journey of that doesn't work like that either because you're essentially trying to carve out part of who you are, right? And so then moving to that accommodation, accommodation, recognizing that it is all of the above. Let's move on to chapter two, evidence-based and promising interventions for grief and loss. On page 36, you were talking about, well, I've heard about cognitive behavioral therapy before, but on this particular page, you were talking about something called traumatic grief cognitive behavioral therapy. What is that? So it was developed initially for kids. It has been tried with other modalities. It was developed in 2004. So, you know, about 15 years ago, it was for children who had experienced multiple losses and traumas early in life, even pre-verbally. It focuses on very gradual exposure to some of the things they may, that may mirror or mimic those trauma and losses to help children and folks cope. It has a model known as the P-Practice model. So the first is psychoeducation, which is like just learning what, what is trauma, what's grief and loss, how do you define it? Then parenting, and that's so to help the folks, particularly the adults in these kids and or other loved ones' lives on how to regulate their emotions when you live with someone who's experiencing trauma. Relaxation skills, how to calm yourself down when you feel really flooded. The A is affect modulation, which means how do you regulate your emotions externally and internally when you do get a trauma trigger? So how do you slow your heart rate down? Then cognitive coping, those are the thoughts in your head. How do you cope with the intrusive thoughts? Trauma narration, 
And that is giving your own voice to a story where you don't feel you have a lot of control over. So you could even argue like this podcast is trauma narration. You're narrating your story and the story of other women who are fighting breast cancer. And then in vivo mastery and then conjoint parent-child sessions if you're working with kids and then enhancing safety. How do you help someone feel safe again, which is a huge piece of it. Right. Because that's something that happens, too, is there's that loss of safety. Like, my world was this way once upon a time, and now it's all flipped upside down. How do I regain that sense of feeling safe again? We may have heard PTSD, and I did an episode once before where I talked more in depth about that. But for anybody that may have missed that episode, that can also develop. What what exactly is PTSD? Because I know a lot of people associate that with people that have come back from war. Right. Right. And so, and and yes, people that have come back from war very well may experience this, it's post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's not exclusive something that only they experience. Help us understand this real quick. What, what is PTSD and how might it relate to a cancer patient? Yep. So post-traumatic stress disorder is a clinical diagnosis. So it's considered a behavioral health diagnosis. It's diagnosed by doctors, psychologists, clinical social workers, anyone in the mental health profession. And it's very, very common in those who experience intrusive medical diagnoses, like cancer, where you have to go through like active treatment. It has to be experiencing symptoms longer than 30 days. And it needs to involve either a perceived or actual threat to one's life. So you either believe you're going to die or something did happen where your life was at risk. And it's characterized by re-experiencing feelings of terror, intrusive thoughts related to terror, nightmares, flashbacks, something that's called increased arousal, which means being physically and emotionally reactive. And then the other hallmark of it is avoidance of stimuli related to the event or news. And that this avoidance causes alterations in one's mood and in one's thinking. So that would be like the avoidance piece would be after I'm done with all this treatment and stuff and trying to sift through and process it and you have all these follow-up appointments, I would drive to the doctor's office and I couldn't get out of the car. That's a perfect example. Okay. And then the intrusive thoughts, like they can happen either in a dream or it could just be re-seeing or re-feeling the event, but also the emotions that are associated with that event. Right. Absolutely. Yep. And also a sensation on the flip side of numbing, feeling completely numb, no feelings, zero affect related to the event where you would typically feel feelings. Is that a coping mechanism to try to avoid those intense, overwhelming ones from the the trauma itself? Absolutely. It's the body's way of reacting to protect itself. There's something called EMDR that some people do that can help with trauma. What is, and I, and I know that it was mentioned in your book a few times too. Help us better understand what EMDR is. Sure. It was developed in the 1990s by a woman named Francine Shapiro. Uh, it stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And there's two pieces to it. So one is the trauma survivor recounting orally the events that happened. So recalling them in their mind and saying them out loud, where the therapist guides the survivor through bilateral sensory input. So that can be tracking the therapist's finger with their eye or doing some sort of tapping on their own body. And the idea behind it is that retelling it while engaging in this bilateral stimulation 
desensitizes you to telling it over and over again. So it lessens sort of the the terror and the impact as you go through it. So just to kind of reiterate, that is something that would be helpful potentially for somebody that is struggling with PTSD. Absolutely. So yes, it's considered an evidence-based practice for PTSD. Um, it has mixed results in the research. Some folks find it very helpful. Some find it less helpful. I think that speaks to the you know individual experience right. on this journey. It can be very healing and empowering. Yeah. I've heard a few people that have. I have not, but I've heard of a few people that have done it and has spoke in its favor. I was um, curious about that and wanted to make sure people knew that that was something to at least ask about. Absolutely. So later in chapter two, you talk about a few other kinds of therapy, including art therapy and animal assisted or what I like to call pet therapy. How can these be helpful for those that are stricken with grief? So art therapy, and I do a lot of creative expressions in art therapy in my practice, is great because you don't have to have words. You know, images are so powerful, right? We were just talking about with PTSD, how you can recall images in your mind. Being able to draw or collage or paint or sculpt some of those feelings when you just don't have the words is a really powerful and kinesthetic way of getting those feelings out of your body. Sometimes you, you don't may, have to be an expert. And you do not have to be an artist. Actually, one of the most powerful forms of art therapy can be finger painting, even oh. as adults, because you're getting your hands in the mess. It can also, you have to do some trauma work beforehand because it can actually be very triggering. It's so powerful. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be an expert to engage in art. But it, I think it really deepens your ability to share your experience and make sense of your feelings. And to to process through them. I know I had a a good friend of mine once said that the only way out is through. You can't undo what's been done and you can't just magically jump away from it. The only way out is to process through that. And so those are some good ideas of ways to help you do that when, as you said, you don't necessarily have the words for it. Well, I just wanted to jump in one more thing about art therapy. So art is something you can do on your own for your own self-healing. If you are open to therapy, working with someone who has a creative expressions background, or you can see trained registered art therapists. Um, And those are sort of three different levels you can explore if it's something that interests you. Okay, cool. I didn't know that there were trained art therapists. That's cool. Yes, you can get your master's degree and even your PhD in art therapy. There is a registered art therapists organization that takes care of their licensing and accredited programs. Awesome. They can be very gifted clinicians. So yes, animal assisted therapy. Yes, I have to put in a plug here about the animals because so our hospital and they incorporate some art therapy and some music therapy. They'll have like a harpist come in every so often and play. So it's nice and soothing in that waiting room. But then they also have pet therapy. They'll bring the dogs in. And I remember one day coming back from, I guess it was a radiation treatment. And there was this big fluffy dog there. And I remember smiling and thinking, oh, that's so sweet that they have the puppy dogs here. And I just kind of smiled at them. And then I gave him a little pet on the head. And then I was like, now let me give you a giant hug. And oh my gosh, it just made my heart smile so much. Just the power of feeling that love was helpful. There are also actually, so there are animals who are trained service dogs for survivors of PTSD who have acute PTSD, you can get a puppy that has been trained and gone through a screening process who alerts you to when you are having a flashback or numbing experience. They work in the same way that other service dogs work, like those who are trained for diabetes and seizure disorders. So that's one type of 
service animal experience, but animal assisted therapy involves the therapeutic use of animals and their handlers to decrease the stress response and arousal in folks who may be flooded with emotion. And it's not just dogs, it can be horses, it can be rabbits, it can be cats, but they have been trained and vetted and so have their handlers to provide a supportive experience for folks to feel calm and comfortable because when we're flooded with emotions and our stress level is high, our brain is flooded with cortisol. And so the act of petting an animal, cuddling an animal, smelling them, rubbing their floppy ears, that automatically brings our cortisol level down. It slows down our breathing. It slows down our heart rate. So I'm a huge advocate of these complementary therapies like AAT. So there's real science to be said for behind why it is so helpful. Absolutely. Yes. And that's why they have you know, they're bringing more animals into nursing homes, why they have first responder dogs at sentinel events like uh, school shootings, and because they've been shown to actually create a physiological response in the humans that get to be with them. That's awesome. I want to move on to the nature of loss. And in this section, you have a collection of different professionals and their personal stories of working as clinicians while experiencing their own levels of loss. And one of the sections, Allison Spinweber writes about losing Lyndon. On page 80, she writes, through the loss, I had a lot of support from friends and family. I had one friend who always remembered to check in with me on tough anniversaries. A few said the wrong thing or nothing at all, and this hurt. I also realized that sometimes people aren't necessarily saying something wrong, but more that I am angry and hurt, and their inability to say exactly the right thing makes them an easy target for my feelings. And I wanted to bring this quote up because I cannot tell you the number of people that have spoken to me and have told me a similar frustration. People will tell me that either they've lost friends or that they get really irritated because somebody has said something that was in their mind cruel, like, oh, I know somebody that had cancer, but they died. Or the whole, you're going to be fine, don't worry about it. Well, you know, as a cancer patient, we know that you don't know whether or not we're going to be fine or not. So that would trigger some people and and get them upset as well. What should people keep in mind when they hear some of these less than ideal things from the ones that they love? There is no one right way to react to when somebody says something unintentionally thoughtless. People make loss often about themselves because as a culture, I think we're very uncomfortable with loss and uncomfortable with grief. It really scares us when we hear someone young and healthy is not young and healthy. And our defense mechanism is to make it about us and to try and make ourselves feel better or to offer a platitude, you know, something that is commonly said to those fighting battles of grief and loss. Well, God wouldn't give you more than you can handle. I don't believe that (laughs) (laughs) at all. And so I think that I would not preach patience because sometimes you're having a bad day and you want to look at that person and say, actually, you know what? God gave me way more than I can handle. I don't appreciate what you've said. Like you don't have to always be kind. I think if you can remember that people are well-intended in their thoughtlessness, but it's trying to help. It is, but it's so hard to be invalidated. And that's really what happens when people say something like, oh, well, you're going to be fine. You're young, you're healthy, you're strong. And it's not our job when we're fighting a battle of grief and loss to re-educate someone. 
right? That's important. That right there is important for people to hear. That should not be your burden to bear when you are fighting for your life. It right. should. But if you have it in you that day, you can say, I appreciate you saying that. But in fact, this is a big deal to me. And no matter how strong and young I am, this is a very scary fight. So I think you have to honor your feelings and where you are. And sometimes it does mean disconnecting from people who aren't sharing your experience because on some days there's only so many thoughtless comments you can take. Right. The whole focus on what you can control and letting go of what you can't. I mean, you can control your, your words and your response to them, but at the end of the day, you can't necessarily control what they are, aren't going to say. So learning when to let that go. If you need to remove yourself from their company for a little while, or if you just need to let their comments brush off, if you are able to do that, because maybe you tell yourself, I know that what they're trying to tell me is that they love me and they support me and they're rooting for me. Even if the words aren't coming out in the order in which I want to hear them, I know that that is where their heart is coming from. However, you're able to make it work in your mind so that you're not taking on, I like what you said, that burden of trying to re-educate them in that moment, because that's not something you need to be dealing with in the moment of loss and grief. Your energy on. I'm a very big fan of, there's a woman named Megan Devine who wrote a book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, and it's about grief and loss. She has a great Instagram that when I've gone through my own grief experiences, I started to, I didn't even follow her as a scholar. I followed her after experiencing some loss myself. And she has some great conversations on a monthly basis about, you know, what are some of the insensitive things people have said to you about grief and loss? And here's what you can say back. So What's her name again? It's Megan Devine, D-E-V-I-N-E, and her Instagram is Refuge in Grief. And she offers kind of almost a menu of what to say when folks are saying well-intended yet still very hurtful things. Yes, and that will, it's bound to happen at some point in time Mm -hmm. or another because it's part of this, this grief journey that maybe you weren't anticipating, but it does happen. So moving on in your book, there's um, a few more stories that were told. One was a woman who lost her infant to SIDS, and they talk about that on page 86 to 87. And she coped by keeping busy and plunged herself into her work, gathering as much information as she possibly could. And then another professional on page 91 talked about industrial grief and that she experienced that following the loss of her son to suicide. I know we kind of talked about staying busy as a form of avoidance earlier, but I I wanted to put these words out there and, and kind of take them apart a little bit. What exactly is industrial grief? It's throwing yourself into your work at the expense of caring for yourself and being mindful of what your body is going through. So however you define work, it is committing to that fully, saying, I'm going to do this, even though I'm also going to treatment, having all of these appointments, I have this upcoming surgery. It's almost this compulsive need to work so that you can avoid sitting with your feelings. And I can say that I am a professional at trying to do that. <laughs> Been there, tried that. But as I have learned, there does come a point where you have to process through those emotions. So how then can this industrial grief, can it impede one's ability to actually heal completely? Absolutely. So feelings are dynamic, organic. Sometimes I even describe them as gremlins. You can lock them up in a file cabinet. You could throw away the key. They're still going to be inside the file cabinet. And they might sit quietly for a while. But they don't need a lot of food and water. And eventually they're going to scratch to get out. And right. eventually, no matter how much you ignore them, they're going to grow big enough that they can just 
bust the doors right open. So industrial, you know, industrial grief, this working compulsively will serve a purpose to a point and then it just stops being effective. The only way out is through. You have to process through it. Yes. Or your feelings will make themselves heard, whether or not you give consent for them. (laughs) And maybe at a time that you don't necessarily want them to be heard. I have been told that therapy too. Why am I crying over gray paint? Well, clearly (laughs) I have not been focusing on some other things. Okay, so I often talk about how surviving cancer involves both the physical and emotional wounds. I think that as a very driven type A individual, when I was first slammed with this adversity, I didn't quite get that. I like to think I'm a smart person, but I still, I swear, I did not get that. I was like, okay, I've got these physical hurdles I got to get through, but I didn't really recognize that there was going to be this layer of emotional healing that was going to accompany it as well, but yet there it was. And many cancer patients that I've talked to will tell me that what they do is they will push away their emotions. And I know we talked about how, I loved what you said about the gremlins. You can only do that for so long, right? There's this fine line because you want to get back on with living your life following a trauma. But when you plunge yourself into work and you never address and healing from those emotions, you're not actually working towards healing. So did you want to add anything else about not facing your emotions? Well, one thing I did want to say is this is a very famous book on trauma by Bessel van der Kolk, and it's entitled Our Body Keeps Score. And that is true. Our body is keeping track of us not feeling our feelings. So, you know, it can turn into migraine headaches or backaches or somatic issues that don't necessarily relate with your di- to your diagnosis or treatment, but are in fact stress-induced. Mm-hmm. So if we don't take the time to sit with our emotions and we don't move through, um, is that we can pay a high price physically as well. Mm -hmm. What would you like to say to people that um, maybe are at this particular point? Because I know I was there once upon a time where they're maybe afraid to sit with their negative emotions because they maybe they feel like they're going to steamroll them or that they're going to take over. Or if I feel this sadness or this grief, then I'm never going to get out and I'm never going to be happy again. I know I felt like that before and have moved past it, but for somebody that maybe hasn't moved past it, what what do you want them to know in that moment about feeling those intensity and being afraid to look at them? That feelings are impermanent. And sometimes that's the mantra we need. The, The mantra, this too shall pass. I use that for feelings. Like I once read the statistic and I can't cite it. So we don't know if it's true, but that the brain can only tolerate being angry for 20 minutes. And so I know when I'm enraged, for whatever reason, that statistic sticks in my head. I'm like, all right, well, I'm only going to feel this way for 20 minutes. Because what happens is your brain gets so tired of the adrenaline pumping through it that your body naturally starts to relax. There are only so many tears that you can cry. Like at some point, your body will exhaust itself and you have to make a choice. Do I get up and blow my nose and get some water? Or do I lay here on the floor for a few more minutes? Because this is where I'm at today. So I think remembering that the more we allow ourselves to confront our feelings, honestly, the quicker, because they just want to be heard. The sooner we can sit through them, the quicker they will will move through. Feelings, it's a very dynamic state. Right. No emotion lasts forever. I want to capture a few quotes from your book that I really liked. Uh, Luella Loudenbach on page 121, she captured the essence of grief quite perfectly, actually. She writes, grief is not something to get over. It's not linear or time-oriented. It's messy, awkward, and painful. And Jean Toner on page 129 writes, 
In trauma, we suffer loss of safety, loss of predictability in our daily lives, loss of connectedness to the present moment, loss of the ability to stay in our bodies, loss of a sense of what is real and what is not real. And on page 131, Tona writes, beautiful quote again that also resonated with me. They write, being strong was actually a coping strategy that separated me from my trauma and prevented me from being vulnerable or authentic. I used to think to experience these negative emotions might mean that I was somehow weak. I couldn't afford to be weak because I didn't want to die. I was trying to fight for my life and weakness was something that I couldn't embody. And so I, I wrongfully assumed that me feeling those emotions was weakness, but it's not, right? No, not at all. There's no one right way to fight a life-threatening illness like cancer. And again, if we look at this holistic perspective, feelings are so important to our experience. You know, anger can be very terrifying, but it's a healthy emotion. We all get angry. Fear is a healthy emotion. Fear tells us when to get out of a situation. They are as important as joy. So I think some of it comes down to being patient with ourselves to see all of those feelings as equally important. And the more voice we give to those feelings, the entire emotional experience, it doesn't make us vulnerable. It actually contributes to our emotional health. I think it actually makes us strong when we're able to recognize and accept them as part of us. And it is quite the life lesson of my own. And it has been a road to learn that fear is not always the bad guy. Fear is actually trying to protect us. And I always picture now after having watched the movie Inside Out, I'm always patient those little guys up in there trying to, um, and, and, and all having our best interest in mind. They just are coming at it from different angles. And when you can take a, a slightly different shift in perspective with that, that's not weakness. It's actually strength. Yep. And it contributes to our, our body is designed to try and survive and also try and thrive. So the feelings that we're having are part of our survival skills. Right. In relationship to, to cancer, it's that fear is what's motivating us to go to the doctor, mm -hmm. right? To have our test down. And fear is playing a role on trying to protect us by making us go and do those things. Moving on in your book on page 141, there was another individual, Jamal Aguilar, worked with uh, HIV patients. And that was his whole life's work. That's what he knew. And then one day he had an assignment. His professor asked him, and this was really powerful for me to read. The professor asked him, who are you outside of the world of HIV? And I stopped right there in the middle of reading that. And I thought, dang, that is a very powerful question. If you reflect that back, on somebody that has been traveling through a cancer journey, you have your life before cancer is all this one way. And then you're diagnosed with cancer. And then it's like your whole world just has pink paint sprayed on it. And everything that you know is now taken on this new view. And everything seems to be, well, I have my cancer appointments. I have this, I have that. And it's all centered around cancer and fighting your cancer and trying to never get cancer again and processing through it and, 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 and even myself with trying to write a book and then doing podcasts and everything. It's all cancer related. But this question is brilliant because, okay, this may have been my life before. This is my life after. 
But as we had said before, it might be part of our story, but it doesn't define us either. So if you sift through past that pink on this other side of cancer, who are you outside of breast cancer? And I think that that is a really good thing for people listening to try to ask themselves. But in reflecting, how on earth does somebody start answering that question? I think it's transactional. So who else and what else do we have in our lives and how much of it do we want to all, you know, for someone, the identity of survivor, it may encompass everything and they want, they may want to live and breathe advocacy and psychoeducation and, you know, like in that way, the experience can be transformative and they want it to define every aspect of their life. And so for those folks, that's okay. But if you want to look at what your other roles and identities are, the first thing to do is give yourself some time to ask the question. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of us might like to write or journal. Some of us might like to make lists. But think about who am I in relationship to other people? How do I identify that? Am I a child? Am I a parent? Am I a sibling? Um, How do I define myself through my work? Do I have other interests outside of this identity? Do I have other hobbies? How am I attending to my physical body outside of this? Whatever that looks like. Like maybe beforehand you identified yourself as a runner. But now running is so, or maybe you ran through your whole treatment and you ran a marathon and everything was great. And then all of a sudden you wake up one morning, you're like, I don't think I can be a runner anymore. So then, okay, what, what would you replace that identity with? Mm -hmm. Are you a yogi? Are you a Zumba? So I think being willing to ask the question, giving yourself the time to ask that question. And then I am not a journaler, but I am a list maker. So then kind of making that list, what are the things that you've always wanted to do? What are the things that no longer serve you? And I want to add this too, is not necessarily putting this all on a particular timeline, giving yourself time to come up with these. And it doesn't have to be for all the type A people out there that want to have things done now, (laughs) right? I want to be healed now, giving yourself permission to have that space and to have that time to kind of think it all through and Maybe try this thing and maybe that doesn't work. And I think, being, yeah, um, not being afraid to make a mistake when it comes to figuring out who you are after any transformative experience. There's no one right way to do it. And in fact, people will say, you know, with grief, there's always like the year after the loss, you know, there's the first anniversary of X, X, and X. And then in Western culture, we believe that somehow, somehow magically after that first anniversary, like it's all better. It's not. In fact, what we now know is that second year is often harder because you're like, wait a second, I got through the first year of remission. I got through all the first anniversaries of whether it's diagnosis, treatment, ringing the bell, et cetera. Well, now what do I do that it's year two? And everybody expects me to be fine now, and I'm not fine. You might not figure out who you are or what you are interested in until years three, four, and five, and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. And it can be a process too, yes. right? Like, so it's not... I mean, good Lord, this has been a lesson of mine, too, because I want it now. (laughs) Let me have that carrot, darn it. But recognizing that, and and I think this is incredibly important to remember, is that, you know, that whole cliche, life is a journey. It's a journey. I want to take a look at chapter four as a whole. You and your co-author examine how religion and culture impact clients' responses to trauma this never crossed my mind until you guys put it out there and kind of taking that lens 
from different cultural and belief systems points of view and how how they is as a culture how they process and heal from traumatic losses and grief differently and i guess my question to you is why is it important for future clinicians to understand this and then what can we as individuals who have experienced the trauma walk away with this insight as well sure so culture and also religion and spirituality they collectively tie us to our community right so culture often defines how we celebrate and also how we mourn if we all think take a minute and think about what our own culture is and culture isn't just related to ethnicity and race it can also relate to spiritual tradition it can relate to geographic area say southern culture versus northern culture military culture so Culture is very broadly defined, but it's it involves a set of norms, values, and rituals that help us make sense of our lived experience. And so when you think about it related to trauma, maybe in your culture, you have a stiff upper lip. You know, you pull yourself through. Hard work will get you your end results no matter what. Or maybe in your culture, you are expressive. You weep. You tear at your hair. You mourn. You scream. Those are culturally accepted. And so understanding where you came from in terms of your community and those rituals that were important to you growing up, even if you reject them now as an adult, can, I think, contribute to greater understanding, but also give you greater understanding about how you're reacting to the trauma. So for clinicians to walk through with their clients, so what parts of your culture do you carry with you as an adult? What parts of your culture do you carry with you as an adult facing this health crisis? And what parts have you left behind? What parts serve you? What parts don't? Right. And we all carry some things with us and leave some things behind. And the same thing with religion and spirituality is that, you know, for example, prayer can be very helpful for some folks when they're going through treatment. Or for some folks, it may be a crisis of faith because they feel very betrayed by their higher power. For Mm -hmm. some folks, meditation can be very centering. But there are a number of folks in this book who write about how meditation makes them crazy. Right. <laughs> you know, so I think it's it's helping someone figure out what works for them at the time that they're going through it. That is so important for clinicians to not have their own agenda and to help their clients find permission to let go of the things that no longer serve them. Because it's going to be very individualized. Very much so. Moving on to chapter five. In chapter five, you guys discuss certain exercises that can be done in the classroom. But these are also like I did them. I mean, I'm not a clinician. I'm not like trying to get certified or anything. I'm just a person that has been through no, trauma. No, that's great because the exercises are designed for everyone. Exactly. Just- and and that's what I wanted to make sure that I pointed out to our listeners as well as whether or not you're in school to be a clinician or if you've been somebody who has experienced your own traumas. These are good exercises to to do to kind of wrap your head around things and to process through. We talk about processing. Well, how do you do that? These are some ideas of ways to kind of get you started. And on page 275, you talk about this control and no control circle. I love that. Tell us about that one. So this was an exercise developed by my colleague Kalpana Parekh when she was doing work with those recently diagnosed with HIV. So again, right, this life-threatening diagnosis where you have a before and an after. And so for folks who are fighting breast cancer, the idea between control, the control and no control circle is in the small circle, you write, what are the things I can control? And it can be as small as I can control what socks I put on this morning. 
I can control that I have bananas and oatmeal for breakfast. I can control that I put three sugars and half a cup of cream in my coffee. Because when you get a new diagnosis, so much is out of your control. Yeah. I mean, you really are at the mercy of your body, systems, medications, you know, doctors, schedules. And then the outside circle, the no control circle is, let me write down and process all the things I can't control. Because typically we're really mad about what we can't control and really scared about what we can't Mm -hmm. control. And so the exercise allows us to focus on what we can control and keep that as our hyper point of focus. And then the follow-up to the no control circle is this no control stuff in a box. That's sort of like that gremlin file cabinet I was talking about before, Mm -hmm. which is you can picture a box, a trunk, a safe, a bunker, whatever Mm -hmm. works for you, where you shove in all of those things you can't control and you picture yourself locking them up. And the purpose of any visualization is to give us a feeling of control that even though we can't control these factors, we can control what we think about them. Mm -hmm. That visualization, it kind of gives our mind a little nudge to go, you know what? These things are happening and I have no control over them. But right now, I don't need to think about that. My next appointment is Monday. I cannot do anything until Monday. So I'm going to put it in the bunker. I'm going to roll a bunch of rocks in front of the bunker. I'm going to picture putting, planting some landmines in front of that bunker. And those thoughts are going to stay there. I like that. And I like the idea of putting it into a box. So this is, I actually did this exercise, but an, um, a little twist on it, because I keep hearing, let go of what you can't control, focus on what you can. So if, for instance, either with the COVID-19 pandemic or with a cancer diagnosis, I wish this wasn't so, I wish this wasn't happening. How could this be happening? I wish this could not be the case. Well, that's outside my circle. I can't control that. So anytime I'm floating on that little nugget of, you know, that sentence there, then trying to float back into the center, like, okay, but this is where I am. I can stay home. I can call the doctor. So what do I do with that piece out that's outside that I can't control? I like the idea of the imagery of letting it go. So maybe when I put it in a box, I'm going to give it away to somebody that can take care of it for me. Or maybe I'm just going to like send it up on a cloud and like watch it sail away. Like just, you know, kind of all making this imagery happen in my head, just kind of picturing that, letting it leave my presence somehow, and then focusing on that inner circle. Okay, so chapter six, self-care. What is self-care and why is that so important? So self-care, the technical definition, what it does is it reduces stress that allows us to maintain our physical and psychological health and well-being so that we can honor our commitments. The idea is that it prevents burnout. And for therapists, it prevents compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. And compassion fatigue is when you care for others, you can become so exhausted by it if you don't care for yourself that you actually become kind of embittered, uncompassionate. And vicarious trauma is you hear such difficult things, you actually can develop a form of PTSD yourself from hearing and holding the stories. So you have to really take care of yourself before you're able to take care of others. Before, I would have a hard time grasping that personally because I'd be like, oh, I want to help everybody. But there is some truth to this oxygen mask analogy. So help put that into perspective. What's And so, And same thing for folks who um, do a lot of advocacy work. 
So if you're running a support group for survivors or those who are newly diagnosed, you're also at risk for vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue as well. So it's not just for mental health professionals, but if you're in any kind of giving profession. So the oxygen mask analogy is you have to put your mask on. So if we remember the days that we were airplane travel was safe, (laughs) pre-COVID-19, you know, please put on your oxygen mask before you put it on your dependents. Same thing, if we don't put it on ourselves first, we're gonna run out of oxygen and physically be unable to care for anyone else. And so self-care can be seen as a luxury. It is a frequently mentioned term sort of in pop culture these days. You know, like, oh, I, you know, mani-pedi self-care. And not that that's a bad thing either, but true self-care means taking a moment to pause and saying, what do I need to do right now to give myself some space to sit with my emotions and my experiences so that I can go back and serve others. And that looks different for everybody, but it's actually a necessity. And I'm thrilled that behavioral health programs and and training folks are looking at really how to train folks as a professional skill because self-care is a professional and personal skill. I think it's really challenging when you're living with an illness because everything you're doing is trying to keep yourself alive. So it can feel like a luxury to do something other than fighting for your life. And Mm -hmm. I would say that if you don't give yourself for those smaller things, and it can be a binge fest, it can be a splurge on a food, Mm -hmm. it can be a mani-pedi, it can be, you know, you have to sit and kind of define self-care for yourself. But if you don't give it to yourself, no one else will. If you don't have it, then you can't hold out that hand to someone else and support them. And kind of along these lines, I speak metaphor, that's my language. And I was in therapy and I was telling her, I was like, I feel like I'm drowning. The waves are coming and crashing all over me. I just feel like I'm going to go under any minute. And she had said, well, in those moments, what is wrong with rolling onto your back and floating? And I love that metaphor for so many reasons, but because when you're teaching your kids to swim, that's the first thing you do, right? You teach them how to roll onto their back and float. When you feel like you're into trouble, that's what you do. And it doesn't mean, this is the part of metaphor I really like, it doesn't mean that the swim is over. It doesn't mean that you're giving up. It's just about taking that one moment to catch your breath, to breathe, to do something. And and I think that that can be applied here with that self-care, right? Take a nice hot bubble bath, listen to some calming music, call a friend, go for a walk, whatever that floating looks like for you. It doesn't mean that you're not continuing to fight for your life. It doesn't mean that swim is over. You're just taking a moment to float so that you have that strength to be able to continue with the swim. Absolutely. And and that the swim is also personal. You know, so we talk about this in the book and in the chapter, like, you know, everyone says meditate. And I do practice meditation and it is helpful. But when I was actively grieving, I felt like my skin was on inside out sitting still was bringing up really uncomfortable feelings. That didn't work for me. My co-editor talks about wanting to throw her meditation pillows at people. So you can read all of the books and the blogs about what you should do for self-care, but at the end of the day, it's so important to define it for yourself in that moment and also giving yourself permission that that may evolve. Right. And then I want to add on here as well, on um, page 303 in your book, you're you're talking about some other things that people can do. And one is to say no. So part of self-care can also be putting giant red X's all over your planner. And I can't shove anything into this slot today because there's a giant red X, right? Like there's a big old X sitting in this. So it's okay to have time slots where like you're not always having to 
go, 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 do, 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 do. Right. And my favorite, one of my favorite quotes is no is a complete sentence. Yes. I, I love, love that quote because you don't have to explain it to And let's say you have your best friend in the world who's been amazing and cooking you meals and watching your kids and driving you to treatment. And she's like, come on, let's, you know, let's do a movie night. We'll do pajamas and face masks. And, and all you want to do is go to bed at 4.30 in your fuzzy socks. You can just say no. You don't have to explain it to anybody. You don't have to justify it. But be protective of your time. Because when you're engaged in so much physical fight for yourself, time is one of your greatest resources. Very, very true. Help us understand briefly, what is what is mindfulness and how can that be a good tool? So mindfulness is the psychological process of consciously bringing your attention to the present moment without judgment. It's like pressing the pause button for a minute and doing like a scan of, What am I thinking about? How am I feeling? How is my body reacting? The hard part is doing that without judgment. And the idea is the more mindfully we can walk through the world, sort of the more authentically healthy experience we'll have, not only for ourselves, but in transaction with others. So it's helpful because it asks us to say, what's happening in this moment and what do I need right now without judging it? But like any skill, it takes practice. It's like a muscle. You have to practice it to strengthen it. But it can be really powerful in in helping us really understand what we need. And if in that moment you end up needing to cry, that's okay too. Yep, exactly. Giving yourself permission to be you in that moment. So I have two more questions for you. First off, what would you like the aspiring clinician to walk away from this episode knowing about how to work with those that are dealing with grief and traumatic loss? I think for the beginning clinician, knowing their own relationship to grief and traumatic loss, how it comes up in their storyline and narrative, because that frames how we approach it when we're supporting someone in their journey. So understanding your cultural relationship to it, if you have a spiritual tradition, what that relationship is to it, and then our own experiences. And then the other is to be willing to be open and know that every time we walk through grief and loss with someone, that it's going to transform us as clinicians too, that grief and loss are sticky and messy and heavy, and it doesn't follow a manual. It doesn't follow a particular prescription. Everyone's story is unique, but that grief work will change you. It's the most powerful work that I do, and I'm always profoundly grateful for the lessons that I learn and the folks who allow me to companion them on that journey. That was beautifully said. Like that was, that was beautiful and spot on because it it definitely is a process and it is messy, but it's, it is transformative. No doubt about it. I want to end with my all time favorite question. And I ask everybody because it really speaks to the heart of why I have been doing all these podcasts in the first place. So my question to you is, what would you like somebody who may be diagnosed today or tomorrow to walk away from this episode knowing? That there's no one right way to feel or be. That this is your journey. This is your story. Every emotion is valid. Every moment is important to you in some way. So to give yourself space to feel those feelings. And if you don't feel like giving yourself space to feel those feelings, that's okay too. Just to give yourself permission to be. And also to reach out for community. I think being around those who have walked the path before you and with you is so powerful because 
it can feel it's terrifying and it can be so isolating and to know that when you're ready that there are folks who will sit there with you physically or virtually who have walked a sim they won't have walked your path because they're not you but a similar enough path that I think support is so important. I like to say that you may have to be the one that walks the walk, but you don't have to walk it alone. There's support out there that can be there with you through it. And that can be somebody who's been there and done that and truly gets where you're coming from. But, and then also I want to throw this in there too. I'm a huge advocate for therapy, like huge. So, I mean, you can, you know, pick up the phone, do your research and call and set up a set up an appointment because that is that non-judgmental space where you're able to sift through the mess and figure things out. And I'm obviously very biased in thinking therapy is incredibly important and every therapist should be in their own therapy. Right. Um, but also to know that to find the right therapy for you. So CBT might be really helpful. EMDR might be really helpful an art therapist, talk therapy. So to try therapists and their models on to see what's going to suit you, because it is like, it's like finding a, that fabulous pair of jeans, you know, right. you have to try on 28 pairs before you find the right one. And there may be points where it's a little uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, it will make you feel better. Very nicely said. Well, we are just so blessed to have had you with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time during your uh, coronation over there to speak with us via Skype and to enlighten us about understanding trauma and grief and sharing with us some pieces of your book. One last thing before we go, though, if people are interested in finding your book, where can they go to get a copy? So you can find the book through Cognella Publishing. There are publishers directly on their website, C-O-G-N-E-L-L-A. Um, it's available on Amazon.com. And you can also find me either on LinkedIn or Twitter, and I can point you in the right direction. My Twitter handle is at Elizabeth, E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H, and A-N-N-E-C-C. Well, again, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to help us understand this topic a little bit better. We truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for all of your work. It has been my pleasure. And thanks again to all y'all at home listening. I look forward to speaking with you guys again next week. Until then, remember that together we weather the storm. You are never alone.